Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sailorville Church Online Live right now. And if uh, you brought a copy of Scripture to your living room or whatever setting you're in, uh, you can find Exodus chapter 15 as we continue in our series. Uh, the Exodus journey, the journey to freedom, that is, uh, continues. I know these are bittersweet days for a lot of people, a lot of you. Uh, we, my wife and I... Uh, uh, went to the parking lot here at Sailorville Church yesterday and about a dozen of our seniors were positioned around the parking lot and we sort of made our, we weaved through in our cars, you know, and they, we had all these rules of not getting out and touching and we might have violated a couple of them. But anyway, uh, the point is that uh, it was sort of bittersweet. It was neat that we could honor our seniors, but you know, we sort of felt bad for them as well. These are bittersweet days uh, during this uh, COVID-19 era in which we're living. But even so, uh, the governor is uh, slowly opening up uh, new opportunities for businesses and restaurants. And we're going to see more and more incrementally people getting out, I think. And there are even churches, as we speak, that are getting together this morning. God bless you and your ability to do that. We have 13 to 1,400 people at any given Sunday physically attending here. And it just makes it a little harder. And so we're really working as hard as we can with the wisdom we're asking you to pray for us for as to when we open things up and all come back together again. We're hopeful that will be sooner uh, than later. But these are truly bittersweet times, are they not? And we're talking this morning about facing the bitter things of life. Uh, did your mom ever make you drink something that was just disgusting? You about barfed up when you got done drinking it because it was medicine. And, you know, we get that expression, take your medicine, you know. <laughs> the expression means that, I, you know, I have to do it. I don't want to do it. Sometimes taking our medicine, figuratively speaking, and spiritually speaking, means accepting certain circumstances that either you or me can do nothing about or, or consequences from poor or even sinful choices that you've made or choosing to believe that despite my personal desire, God has led me to an uncomfortable place. That's taken your medicine too. That is to get to a place where you can see this uncomfortable, this undesirable place you're in right now, and that, that probably speaks to many of us, is really a God-led place. So how can you tell you're taking your medicine in a Christ-like way, so to speak? Let me answer that question with a question, as Jesus would often do. If I asked you, on what basis did God not allow the generation that came out of Egypt to go into the promised land? We know that the Bible tells us that they all died off except for the youngins. What was the basis for God not, God not allowing them to, to, to go in? Now, the short answer is, the short answer is unbelief. But think about this. I can't think of one time in this narrative, one time in this historical narrative where you hear the people saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe God. Rather, it's their actions that say they don't believe. Now, make no mistake, they were unbelieving. But just like today, there are always symptoms of one's unbelief that verify one's unbelief. Just as there are symptoms that your belief is real, tantamount to Israel's admission of unbelief was, wait for it, 
complaining, grumbling. When we complain, when we grumble, when we murmur, inwardly or outwardly, we are betraying or acting out our unbelief. So the complaining, the grumbling, the murmuring started back in Egypt, if you'll recall. Uh, it was exasperated at the point of going through the Red Sea. And in spite of just seeing this miracle, you know, the sea opening up, walking through on dry ground, just three days into their desert experience, they're doing it again. And so with that, we go to our Bible reading. John Nimmers is going to come read the scripture. We're in Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 through, 22 rather, through 27. John? Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Eliam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. So if you've been with us, you know the context of what's going on. The children of Israel, 400 years in Egypt, they, they became enslaved. Uh, God sent the deliverer Moses, and through all of those plagues, finally the one of the angel of death taking out the firstborn, God exited his people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And that's where we're at. And I want to point this out repeatedly and, and get it cemented into your minds. God was leading. You need to get that into your head. God was leading. Remember the, the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, the desert of Shur, and uh, we have a picture of it here to show you. This is an aerial picture. Uh, you're probably, this is Egypt here. This is the, the Nile Delta. This is the Nile coming down. This is the area where the, the Jews would have been. They made their trek across the Red Sea. Now, the, the, this is Shur. This is, this is Sinai. The Sinai Peninsula is sort of like, looks like an arrowhead. Probably they're trekking down around here, and, and this is probably the area that they're in. But you need to know that this whole area probably gets about an inch of water a year. It's incredibly dry. It's incredibly hot. But the cloud, the pillar of cloud would have provided shade for them and comfort as they went. And here's the point. God was leading. God was providing. And you need to remember that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, as we take one final look at this, as I've said before, I'm not going to argue for exact locations of certain places, although we do know where this place is mentioned in the text, Mara, because the waters are still bitter to this day. At any rate, I'm not going to argue for exact locations because even though they do have archaeological uh, value for sure, uh, they're fascinating, but uh, 
you know, if they don't possess any spiritual value, it's sort of a distraction to me right now, getting off on exactly where it was. But I want you to notice that very first word in verse 22. It says, then. See, it says, then Moses. When was then? Right after they had sung, they'd crossed the Red Sea and they'd sung that song that we looked at last week with uh, Pastor Paul. We conclude our worship every Sunday with singing. Today, we'll have a couple of songs as well. And then when we're done singing, we all just go to heaven, right? That sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? No, we, we get done worshiping, we get done singing, and then we go out having been taught, having been edified, having been uh, having the word of God inculcated into our soul, then we take the gospel that God has given to us. We take the words that we have just heard and we keep walking, we keep battling, we keep fighting. We don't just go to heaven. The journey goes on. Miriam had just packed up her tambourine. It's kind of, okay, let's go on to the promised land. But the path they would follow would not be the path of least resistance. It would be a hard path, a God-designed path, but he was leading. I always cringe every time I hear a new Christian give a testimony and say at the end something like, and things are all much better now and they're really easy now. You hear that from time to time and I cringe because it's never easy. They learn that pretty quickly. Philip Riken is right when he said, the promised land could not be reached by way I'm sorry, the promised land could, not, could only be reached by way of the wilderness. And so it is with us. The promised land for you and me is heaven. That is those of us who know Jesus. It's not your best life now. Even though God wants us to live victoriously in this world, it's not going to be rainbows and unicorns. Some of you are up against resistance right now. This whole environment that we're living in, there may be some, some physical malady you're dealing with, some relational situation that you're struggling with. The easier way, the easier way out in your mind might not be God's way out. Remember, even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 14, it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 23, they come to Mara. Uh, the word Mara there means bitter. Uh, it, the, there, is an actually, there is an actual spot called Ein Harara in the Sinai Desert. We're pretty certain this is the area they came to because there is water there, but it's brackish or bitter. You can't drink it. And it's still bitter to this day, which really kind of amplifies the miracle that you see here with the log being thrown in and the water is becoming sweet. But if you see in verse 24, there's the word I want you to look at. It says they grumbled against Moses. See that? Get used to this. We've already seen them grumbling earlier. They're going to grumble again and again under different circumstances in spite of all that God has done for them. They murmur, they grumble, they complain. Some of you are already used to it because it describes your life. You're a grumbler, you're a murmurer, you're a complainer, and you know it, right? Just acknowledge it right now. Circumstances don't work out, and you grumble. I'm not foreign to this. My wife, just the other day, my wife and I were at a, 
home improvement store and there was quite a line just to get into it. You know, you had to wait for somebody to leave. You, most of you have probably been there already. You got the six foot distance and all of this. Took us quite some time to finally get into the store. And we got a cart and we did some shopping, but really we were making our way back outside the store to, uh, to grab some plants and some things that we were gonna plant in our garden. So we got all of that together and we started walking back in and the lady said, you can't come back in. And we said, well, no, you don't understand. We, we've already gone through the line and we've got our cart, we've done our shopping. We're just gonna go to the checkout line if you don't mind. No, no, you just, you left and you can't. Yeah, but you made us leave by going out to get, all of our garden stuff was outside. What? Why can't we just, no, you came out, you can't, you can't come back in. You gotta get back in line with your cart, wait through the line and they can go to the checkout. My wife was very, no, I'm kidding. We both were a little bit, we were grumbling to be honest. But we quickly put our grumbling aside when we realized there was nothing we could do about this. There was absolutely nothing we could do about it. And it was such a petty thing anyway. But there is a sense in which we're sort of given to this, are we not? Some more than others. When you're complaining and you are a complainer, that is your nature to constantly murmur, grumble, complain, then you are expressing your immaturity, your ingratitude, your unbelief, and your forgetfulness. I want to show you something real quick here. It's in uh, Psalm 106, which is, a, which is a, a psalm that's a historical record, a song about what was going on here. And in verse 7, it says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. That takes you right to where we're at. They didn't remember. And it was just three days earlier. Surely we have short-term memories, don't we? So the situation is dire. They, they've come upon what looks like an oasis. There's water, but it's Mara. It's bitter. And suddenly two and a half million people are up in arms because they, they were ready to just dive into this water. So what does Moses do? Verse 25 tells us, doesn't tell us what he cried, but he cried to the Lord. There it is. Moses cried to the Lord. We're not told what, we just know he did. God shows him a log. The word, the Hebrew word just means wood. Apparently it busted off a piece of a tree or something. He said, chuck it into the water, into this brackish water, threw it into it. And it tells us in verse 25, it became sweet. <laughs> they literally, this situation literally became a bitter, sweet experience. Mara bitter, sweet waters. Now just think about that for a moment, will you? Most of the lessons you and I learn are bittersweet, aren't they? True godliness, Christ-likeness, which is what we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to picture what we're trying to display here on earth before heaven takes the bitter with the sweet. I'll say that again. All of us have to live through these circumstances, but Christ's likeness will take the bitter with the sweet. And that's why I love what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.14. He said, in the day of prosperity, rejoice. But in the day of adversity, hardness, bitterness, Consider this, surely God, watch it, has placed the one 
alongside the other. And I have discovered, as most of you have as well, that that's just life. You've got the joys and the sorrows, the blessings and the bitterness going side by side, running on parallel tracks until heaven when the one is jettisoned. We're told in the middle of verse 25, a very important, I want you to see it. There the Lord tested them. And just the other day, I got a text from a gentleman in our church who was taking a test for his job. It, was the, it really was the equivalent of a two-year degree if he could pass it. He was very concerned. He wanted me to pray. I would pray for him. But all I could think about was these two high school girls many years ago who said, please pray for us. We're taking a test tomorrow. And it was during a prayer meeting. I said, well, have you studied for your test? And they both looked at me and they said, no. I said, well, then I'm not praying for you <laughs> because they weren't even preparing for it. But this man who texted me had spent no less than three whole days studying for this test. And I was confident as I prayed for him, God, help him to remember the things that he studied and to do well. And sure enough, he passed with flying colors. Listen, the Lord tests you and me the way a, a good teacher will test us here on earth. A good teacher doesn't spring a surprise on you at the time of the test. A good teacher will, will put on the test the things that you've studied, the stuff you're responsible for knowing and memorizing and understanding. I, I have to tell you, I have passed every test I've ever taken, except for the ones I didn't study for. I can think of one time where a professor gave us a test and had a bunch of stuff on the test that was never in the class and never on the worksheet going into the, into the test. And you can believe I let, I let him know about it. Didn't go so well, but the point is that's not, God doesn't do that to us. He will test us, but every time he tests us and the New Testament even uses a word in 1 Corinthians 11, which carries the idea of testing unto approval. God always tests us in, with the idea that we will pass. And remember that no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted. And the word tempted and tested, or could you be used simultaneously? The, it just depends on the context to tell, you, to tell whether it's a test or a temptation. Who will, with the temptation or the test, provide the way of escape? that you can bear up under it. That's what God does. God provided for these Jews in a miraculous way. Think about it. And this was, this was a miracle. I mean, this was a flat-out miracle is what it was. In fact, uh, so much so, think about it. A, one log into some water that makes it sweet so that two and a half million people could be quenched could have their thirst taken care of. It's the same waters which are bitter to this day. God provided for them supernaturally. And at the very end of verses 26 and 27, you see later on they come to yet another oasis that has lots of palm trees and many springs. And that water is natural. And that's the way God, that's the way Jehovah Rapha, that's the Lord who heals. You see that there? He is in verse 26 and 27. He is the God who heals. He He's also the God who provides and he provides for us supernaturally or naturally. Either way, he is Jehovah Rapha. Either way, he's the one who takes care of us. And know this, no matter how bitter your circumstances are right now, 
God can heal the most bitter things in life that you're facing. I was on a walk the other day thinking about this message, thinking about this text, thinking about how to talk to you about how to face the bitterness, the bitter things in life. And I was thinking about the word grumble. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers back to this and says, don't be like those Israelites in the desert who, and he uses the word grumble. And I, I seried, I, I voice texted the word grumble on my walk so that I would, I would have it to refer back to. But I looked down and it, it didn't come out grumble, it came out crumble. And I went to correct it. Then I thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I left it there. And the reason is because if you grumble, you'll crumble. That's what happens when you don't face the bitter things in life the way God wants you to. You go to grumbling. And if you go to grumbling, you'll go to crumbling. You want to keep from crumbling in your life? Let me finish for the balance of our time with five things you need to remind yourself of as you face the bitter things in life. Five things to remind yourself of. Here's the first one. God is still leading. This is the thing you must remember more than anything else. Remember the pillar through all of this, all the way up to the, to the Mara, to the bitter waters, all the way, the pillar was still there. The pillar of fire by night was still there. God was still there. I was a former wrestler. And of course, Dan Gable was everybody's hero back in the 70s and when he became an Olympic champion uh, in uh, 1972. And by the way, recently by one, the TV uh, uh, media outlet uh, voted him the number one sports figure in Iowa of all time. Pretty great honor. I would agree because wrestling is the greatest sport of all. Anyway, he once said, once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. <laughs> now, admittedly, that's a bit of an overstatement. But point is taken. Wrestling is a demanding sport. And here's the point in this text. If you are sure that God is leading, the pillar's there, the fire's there. You don't see a pillar in fire today, but you know he's present because Jesus said, behold, I'm with you, what? Always even at the end of the age. If that's a promise you can hold on to, and it is, the rest, though not easy, is bearable because his provision and his love and his blessing and his sustaining grace will be there as you face the bitter things in life. Are these bitter times for you? We're not meeting together. Not yet anyway. We're not interacting like we'd like to. Does God actually lead his people into bitter circumstances? I know some of you are saying, well, yeah, because he's sovereign and he is. But sometimes we throw that word around willy-nilly almost in a uh, sort of flippant kind of a way. God is sovereign. We almost sound like Muslims. It's like we're fatalist. The sovereignty of God is never detached from his love. I want you to think about that. When you just say God is sovereign, that's kind of cold on the surface. When you say God is sovereign, mean it in the biblical sense of the word. That means God is personally, purposefully, with his omnipresence, lovingly guiding you into, wait for it, even the most bitter of situations in your life. 
When I talk about God led me, now I'm talking about you too. When I hear you talk about God led me, quote unquote, I'm talking about positive leading. You're talking about positive leading. You're talking about to some blessing, to some job, to some situation that's just wonderful and you can't wait to tell everybody about it. Good things. I never hear you talking. I never hear myself talking about God leading me into bitter situations, but I need to. God led me to this accident. God led me to cancer. God led me to go through this difficult situation in my marriage. God has led the church into this period of isolation. Is it possible that God actually has led all this? I would submit to you that he has. And he has his purposes. And I always tell people, just because God doesn't explain to you why he's doing what he's doing, doesn't mean he doesn't have a reason. The secret thing belongs to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So God reveals to you and me everything we need to know. So think about it. God had led Israel right up to the bitter waters. The pillar was still there. God was still leading. This was no accident and neither is your situation right now. And yet, the people grumbled. Do you grumble? Are you grumbling? Secondly, you got to remind yourself when you face these bitter things, I must become, I must not become bitter in my bitter experience. I won't take a lot of time here, but this is big. The greatest temptation you'll face in bitter moments is becoming bitter yourself. That's the greatest temptation you're going to face in your bitter moment, is to become bitter yourself. 300 years after this incident in the wilderness would be the period of judges. And a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law had made their way from Moab, from this pagan territory, back to Israel where she originally belonged, the mother-in-law. The situation was dire. Her husband was dead. Her daughter-in-law's husband was dead. There wasn't a whole lot of hope. In fact, when she got into the promised land and people said, Naomi has returned. She said, no, no, no. Don't call me Naomi. Call me, you know, don't you? Mara. She's thinking back here. But she was only thinking about coming up on the waters. She wasn't thinking about God throwing, Moses throwing the log into the water. She wasn't thinking about the waters becoming sweet again. She couldn't get out of her bitterness. She couldn't see God was leading when he was. Clearly he was. Listen, even in your bitterest moment, God is still leading. So you got to overcome the bitterness of the moment by not becoming bitter. Thirdly, my bitter time will produce a better walk. And by better, I mean sweeter. It was Philip Brooks who said, don't pray for easy lives. Pray for stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to the tasks. That's the reason I never, and I have never asked God, to give my children an easy life. I've never, I think that is a pathetic prayer. And if you're praying that, stop it. 
And when I hear people say, well, I want my kids to be better off than me. What in the world does that even mean? What does that even mean? If you want them to do better, they'll do better by handling the harder and bitter things of life in a Christ-like way and perhaps better than you have. All of us eventually come to bitter waters in life. And we don't get to choose the ingredients that are in those waters, do we? Be it our health, poverty, divorce, loneliness, death, our children, the inability to have children. There's certainly more than one kind of bitter water to drink. And by the way, I just said you can't choose it. It's interesting, what came to my mind this morning as I was thinking about this, David, King David later on, would be given a chance to pick his poison. Do you remember that? You can find it for yourself. He was given, God, gave, God said, I'll tell you what, you can choose this, this, or they gave him three choices, and all of them were incredibly bitter. And he basically said, God, you choose. And he did. The bottom line is God is with you. Like he tells us in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who formed you. I called you by your name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. The fires aren't going to consume you. You're mine. I think Job put it best when he said, I'm looking everywhere. I don't see God here. I don't, he's working, but I don't see him there. But he knows the way that I take. When he's tested me, I will come forth as what? As gold. Better from the bitter. Fourthly, once my bitter waters become sweet, let me learn from God. These are reminders. That when you face the bitter things in life, you've got to remind yourself, once my bitter waters become sweet, and they will, let me learn from God. Think about this. Three days in the heat. Insatiable thirst now desiring to be quenched, they come to these waters and, oh my goodness, they're poisoned, they're bitter. God does a miracle. They get to drink all the water they need. Two and a half million people. Do you suppose they were open to instruction then? Because that, at the end of our text, verses 26 and 27, that's when Moses began to teach them, actually beginning in verse 25. And here's a truth I want you to get a hold of. I learn most in bitter times and more often than not, looking back. Isn't that true? Moses says to these individuals as they are, their thirst is now quenched that if you obey my statutes, if you obey the Lord's statutes, you'll have none of these diseases that afflicted the Egyptians. By the way, this is a perfect example of a promise to Israel, not to us. There, those who don't take the Bible as a whole, they don't understand the scripture in its context, they yank verses out of their context, claim verses like these, that I'll have none of these diseases. That's not a promise that has been given to you. The Bible has lots of promises and lots that you and I can claim. But not all of them are to us and we should learn the difference. How silly would it be for me uh, to have a friend who tells me, hey, my dad's dying, but he just told me he's going to give up. He's going to, he's going to, I'm going to inherit his million dollar home upon his death. And for me to say to my friend, oh, good, I'd like to get in on that. 
That would be an insult. It would be silly. The promise wasn't to me. It was to my friend. I don't get to get in on that. There are lots of promises, like, like in John 5.24, where Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment, but will pass from death to life. That's a promise if you, if you believe on the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12.6, Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. That's a promise you can hold on to. God will discipline you. And we just alluded to the other one. There's no temptation, no trial, no bitterness. But such as is common to men, God's faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear. He'll provide the way of escape. That's a promise you can cling to. But there's probably not a more abused verse in the Bible. And some of you still claim this and you need to quit doing that if you claim it as a life verse. You know, we're, we're in Jeremiah 29. You know, I've, you know, behold, you know, I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prosper you. I'm going to keep you from evil. And I'm going to give you a hope and a future. This was a promise given to the Jews heading off to captivity. It's not a promise given to you and me. Why is this important? I'll tell you why. Because it'll, some of you, if you're claiming promises not intended for you, it will cause great distraction, disillusionment, disappointment. There's a woman in our church, many of you know her name. I'm just going to name her. Her name is Jean. Lovely woman. She loves Jesus. And she has cancer. She has a brain tumor. It's not going to get better. It will eventually take her to heaven. She, has, she clings to the promise of eternal life promised her because she trusted Jesus. She clings to the promise of the presence of God. And she clings to the promise that God is going to give her grace and sustain her until the day he takes her to heaven her ultimate promise, the promised land we all wait for. So it's a beautiful thing to behold, watching her dying with grace. But there was a friend of mine many years ago in my first uh, pastorate. He was a younger guy and he had a very strange disease. Nobody really, it was very mysterious, but it was taking all kinds of things away from him, his ability to to function, to walk, to his coordination was gone. Uh, it started to affect his speech. And uh, by and by, his, uh, one of his parents really started to believe in that health, wealth, and prosperity teaching that you could name it and claim it. And he would come and he would claim he was going to be healed. And his, his, one of his parents just continued to double down on that. Eventually, they would leave our church and seek after these kinds of healers out there and they were constantly disillusioned because he never got better. He only got worse. He was a godly young man that was being misinformed, claiming things not belonging to him. That might be some of you claiming things that don't belong. By the way, well, I got to tell you what I found out just this morning about that young man. But I'll get to it. Skip Heisig tells about a man who came up to him one day who had a, who is, his leg was in a cast and he said, oh, wow. He goes, how's your leg? Oh, my, it's healed. He goes, what do you mean it's healed? Yeah, it's, it's healed. He said, I, I mean, I, I'm claiming God has healed me. I mean, I, uh, uh, in fact, I went to hear somebody preach and he, he, he laid hands on it and it's healed. And Isaac said to him, he said, then don't tell anyone that God healed you or they'll think he does a cruddy work. Let me tell you something. God never does cruddy work. He doesn't do cruddy work. He keeps his promises. 
And there are two that you can claim right here, right now. You can bank on it. If you know Christ, you can bank on his presence and you can bank on his place. His place is heaven. You're going there no matter what kind of bitter waters you got to walk through between now and then. Just one more thing and we're done. As you face the bitter things in life, remember God's still leading me. You know, I, I, I mustn't become bitter in my bitter experience. And remind yourself that my bitter time will produce a sweeter, better walk. And once my waters become sweet, help me to hear and listen from God. And lastly, it's okay to cry out to God. How's that? Remind yourself, it's okay to be desperate and cry out to God. Moses, like the rest of the Jews, would have been delighted at the very sight of Marah. And he would have been disheartened, just like the rest of the Jews, when he found out the condition of the waters. What was the difference between Moses and the rest of those Jews? <laughs> it was a big difference. They both cried out. Did you notice? They both cried out. But Moses cried out to God. And that makes all the difference. It's okay if you cry. But if your crying is shaking your fist, if it's grumbling and complaining... God won't honor that. Cry out to him. Pour out your heart to him. And if there's a complaint, bring it up to him. He'll listen to you. Does God lead us into desperate circumstances from time to time? Yes. Yes, he does. Why? Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to cry out to him. So go ahead. Take your medicine. It'll be bittersweet. But the sweetness is what is to come. The young man that I just referred to a little bit ago who was misled by one of his parents into thinking he would be healed. I lost track of him about 30 years ago. I have not had any communication with him for 30 years. And so I just, this morning I was thinking about him because I really loved this guy. He really did love Jesus. He was just misinformed. And I just did a quick little cursory search and found him. And wouldn't you know, he found his Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Just a couple of months ago, he passed into glory. He never got better. My understanding is it just got worse and worse and worse. But today, his bitter waters are sweet. You know, when my wife often gives her testimony, she talks about her first husband. His name was Loris, better known as Lori. Uh, he contracted, really didn't contract anything, was passed through the genes, an autoimmune deal, and his liver went south, and he had nothing to do with alcohol. Just was, it was just bad liver. And he finally got the liver replaced, but it, it was too late. And he was dying. The doctors took my wife aside, and they, they, they thought maybe she wasn't handling it properly. And she said, look, either way, my husband's a winner. If he, if he, if he lives through this, he's a winner. If he, if he, if he, if he dies, he, he's a winner. If he's healed in life, he's a winner. If, he, if he's healed in death, he's a winner. 
And she always concludes her testimony by saying, and the Lord healed him by taking him home. <laughs> His bitter waters became sweet. Just like my friends, who's now experienced the sweetness of the presence of God. You can have that too, dear friend. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's okay to cry out to God, especially if you don't know him, especially if you're still embedded in your sins, especially if everything in life is in this life and not in the after, not in God, not in his son who died and rose again for you. If you have never believed that God, son, came to this world to take and drink down all of the bitterness of sin and disease and everything that goes crooked in this life. He took it all upon himself on the cross so that you and me could go from the bitter to the sweet. Trust Jesus today and you will be saved. And no matter what life has that's bitter towards you right now, will become better. It'll become sweet. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for this great story, this great miracle that reminds us that you are the God who is always there. You're always leading. You're always present. And yes, Lord, you do lead us into bitter circumstances from time to time so that we might trust you and cry out to you. I pray for those who are right now listening and praying that are enduring really bitter hardship right now. It might be a heart thing. Uh, their hearts are so hurt. They've been hurt so badly. It might be a physical thing. They're in great pain. Like my friend Jean, we pray that you would give her grace. It might be something else. Give them grace to endure their bitterness with the prospect of it becoming sweet, either in this life or in the next. And save those, Lord, who are listening, who have never trusted your son who took all of our bitterness upon the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.